You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is John C. McManus, and he is a historian. His books, I confess I've only read the one that we've talked about, but I've read, we're going to talk about today, but I've read other reviews of his books in the way that Professor McManus weaves in the strategy with the thoughts and the experiences of the everyday soldier, the person on the island, on the beach, however you want to say it, is simply superb. John is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's perhaps celebrating the Chiefs' win in the Super Bowl. We'll ask him. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Tennessee and has written several books, including The Deadly Brotherhood, The American Combat Soldier in World War II, The Americans at D-Day, The American Experience at the Normandy Invasion, and we're just going to choose another one, Grunts, the American Infantry Combat Experience, World War II through Iraq. Professor McManus, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate that in- intro, uh, Robert. Well, I'm going to grab your book, uh, the last one. My son did two tours in Afghanistan as 11 Bravo. Mm. His father, meaning me, had a TV show when I was in the army. So I always kind of say, dude, you could have chosen a better path, <laughs> uh, easier path. Um, oh, absolutely. He chose the toughest path. <laughs> he did choose the toughest path. <laughs> Very proud of him. We're going to discuss, this is the third book in your trilogy, correct? That's correct. The U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945. And the book is called To the End of the Earth. 
to the end of the earth. Professor McManus, as I we were talking before we started recording, I grew up, uh, my mother was in the Marine Corps, my father was in the Marine Corps. So the Marines basically won World War II. Even in Europe, you know, they weren't <laughs> very specific. The Army, does it get, and as part of your rationale for writing, does it get a short shrift for its work in the Pacific? Because the Marines undoubtedly displayed such heroism when they were driving through the Central Pacific. Oh, absolutely. And and so that that's actually, Robert, what attracted me to this um, topic, you know, especially as a as someone who's been a, an historian of the Army on, on many different levels and different some level of different eras. Um, it really stuck out to me that I think in our popular memory of World War II in the Pacific, uh, there's a sense that, um, you know, the, it was the Navy's war and all the ground fighting was done by Marines and the Army just kind of focused on Europe. Well, the Army was focusing on Europe, but it also had a major war to fight in the Pacific against Japan. Um, 1.8 million ground soldiers served in the war against Japan. That's the third largest army we've ever sent overseas to fight a war. Um, you know, so right there, you're talking about a massive human story. Uh, and also maybe a kind of a different level of understanding of World War II. So I took on this idea of, of telling the Army story in the Pacific um, in, in the war against Japan. It ends up being three volumes. And that, I think that tells you something right there, that it's an enormous story. So in doing that, I wanted to, to make it clear that I wasn't trying to denigrate the Marine Corps. It's actually the opposite, because when you get a sense of this context, uh, that, you know, you're talking about at most six Marine divisions and almost four times that many Army divisions uh, and the Army responsible for logistics and transportation and communication and, and aviation engineers. And, you know, I mean, all these multiplicity of kind of, of MOSs and tasks, you get a sense then of the, the kind of larger scale and context of the war. And you also get a sense, too, that the Marines are really punching above their weight. Uh, they had incredible valor, but just that weren't that many of them. Uh, so in, in the bulk of the fighting really is done by the army in the, the numerical disparity, how did that come about? You were drafted into a or B or, but you could of course sign up, you could volunteer as a lot of folks did, but why were the, why was there that disparity? Well, because the Marines were primarily volunteer and it's designed as a small, uh, service force. It's, um, uh, generally it had been an amphibious expeditionary force, but uh, the Marines had done a decent amount of, uh, counterinsurgency uh, warfare in, in Central America in the 1920s, too, so that the Marines had a very good handle on uh, amphibious and and uh, sort of close-in, sharp, and fighting. Uh, but as of all-volunteer service, it's just not designed to be that large. Uh, and, of course, by the end of the war, there, the Marines were taking some draftees, but the way it worked, you'd get your draft notice, and then you'd go to report for induction and they would give you the opportunity to be voluntold, basically, to be in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so you're seeing a few people like that, but that's toward the end of the war. And if, by contrast, of course, you know, the Army was was primarily made up of draftees in World War II. About two-thirds of those who serve in the armed forces were draftees during that war. So the Army is going to get the bulk of them as the largest service uh, that has the most global responsibilities when you, you know, when, when you factor in Europe and, and the Pacific, too. So there was really just a much better chance that you would be an army soldier and 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 uh also you know 
the, the war is not just about the actual sharp end of fighting. It's all those other jobs, very unglamorous in many cases that have to be done. And, and the army is really taking the lead on that. Yes, we're very unglamorous. That's certainly true. <laughs> I, I second that. And there was no separate Air Force at the time. It was tied into the Army Right, Air Force. but you know, it, exactly, it was the Army Air Forces. And that, that's another thing that's so staggering, is that the Air Force is part of the Army then, and yet that 1.8 million soldier number I gave you is only Army ground soldiers. It, it doesn't even include the Army Air Forces, which if you include that, that's hundreds of thousands more. And of course, obviously, a, a major component of, of the war, the strategic air campaign and the fighters and all that. Set the stage a little bit for us. So the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, as part of an overall offensive in the Pacific Ocean to include the Philippines. I think the Philippines, where they invaded December 8th, maybe the next day or shortly thereafter. Well, they're bombed within a day or so. Yeah, the, the actual first landing, I think, happens on December 12th. And that lasts. So the Japanese battle invasion of the philippines from formosa lasts about six months and roughly yeah and so then you have the Bataan death march the surrender at Corregidor. you have general macarthur being extricated on the order of president roosevelt uh, thousands of prisoners of war that stage of of the war in the pacific isn't what we're talking about here, but that sets the stage for what happens in in October, I think, of 44. So if you take just a few minutes and and kind of preview what had been happening just in the Macar in the in the Western Pacific that led up to the invasion of the Philippines, it capitulated in May, I think, of 42. And then the invasion is, I think, October of 44. So how do we get there from that abject spot of of surrender? Yeah, it's an enormous undertaking. The Philippines are actually really the nexus of the, the entire American Pacific War against Japan. There's two major campaigns fought there. Um, you know, you mentioned the first one, which is, of course, a debacle for the Filipinos and the Americans. Um, you've got about 21,000 Americans who were captured, you know, in May, April to June 1942, most of them. Um, and you've got almost four times that many Filipinos. It's It's an army at that point that's unique in American history and that it's a colonial army, mostly local guys, uh, but also American soldiers mixed in too. Um, so I covered that pretty extensively in the first volume called Fire and Fortitude. And it's um, just so tragic <laughs> on so many levels, uh, especially the POW experience, because about 37% of them did not survive. Um, so what you've had, of course, in the interval of MacArthur's theater, what was called the Southwest Pacific Area, sort of based in Australia. Um, MacArthur's going to spend the better part of 1942, 43, much of 44, negotiating his way across New Guinea, one of the world's largest islands, uh, in, in all sorts of fighting and campaigning and, and uh, sort of Lancier operations and all that. It's not until October 1944, as you mentioned, uh, that the Americans are going to position to invade somewhere in the Philippines again. And at that point, they hit Leyte, which is sort of in the midsection of the archipelago. Uh, and Leyte ends up as just this absolute nightmare of, a, of an attrition struggle uh, with horrendous uh, weather. You've got three different monsoons that come in that dump about 30 inches of rain on the island. And you know, you're you're just in the mud and the mountains, and and uh, you know, just just sort of grinding it out with them. So all of that has happened, uh, and I, I cover that in the second volume called Island Infernos. 
all of that had happened in that October to January timeframe. Uh, and even though fighting was still going on in Leyte, uh, the operations are now moving north. And of course, the largest island is Luzon, uh, which has Manila and all the rest and Bataan, as you mentioned. So uh, the Americans invade there on January 9th. And really, that's kind of the capstone of MacArthur's operations, because to him, it's like a crusade to come back and liberate the Philippines. January 9th of 45, correct? 1945. Correct. You know, you mentioned the horrendous conditions, and I've got several questions about that. But since you mentioned it, talk to the Leaders and Legends podcast audience about how the Japanese fought on the defensive, you know, really post midway in June of 42. Uh, but they, fanatical is the word that's always used. I cannot think of a better word. So in your books, you do a terrific job in especially conveying the notion that the Japanese just simply weren't going to surrender and you had to go get them. All right. I mean, I mean, that was really the greatest asset of the Japanese soldier in war too. generally his willingness to stay in and fight to the death. Um, and what that meant, really, and you kind of see this all the way from the South Pacific um, through the Central Pacific island hopping campaigns, the Philippines, later on Iwo Jima, Okinawa. What it tended to mean is that the Japanese soldier was really quite potent on defense when he was dug in, uh, when he had decent fortifications, incredible fields of fire sometimes, uh, sometimes pretty decent fire support, although the Japanese were really outclassed when it came to artillery, um, at least compared with the Americans. But, um, you know, that, that was a very formidable opponent to have. You, you'd have to just basically root him out of, of the jungles, uh, the caves, um, bunkers, tunnels, whatever it would be, whatever we happen to be talking about. Um, you're, you're doing that and that is very time intensive and certainly, you know, it's going to be costly in terms of blood, but what the Japanese soldier wasn't very good at, in, at least in relation to, to, uh, the fighting against the U S was offensive operations. Um, uh, they didn't have a particularly good grasp of combined arms. Um, they tended to waste their, the, the cream of their soldiers on, on, uh, wasteful frontal attacks that are often called bonsai assaults mm -hmm. that, that sometimes were meant to be suicidal and other times not. Um, you know, so what, what you're, the pattern you're seeing is certainly by 1945 is most of the smart Japanese commanders have grasped this and realized their best chance to get some sort of decent resolution to this war, which probably means anything short of an American occupation of Japan, the end of the empire and keeping the emperor, um, that the best way to do that is just keep wearing down and bleeding the Americans so that they'll come to some sort of settlement short of unconditional surrender. And that willingness to fight to the death, because, I mean, Russian, and, or I guess I'd say Soviet and German and American and British and French and Australian troops and Chinese, they all fought to the death. But it's it's what you just described that sets the Japanese soldier apart and why we chuckle at the fact that there were still some who hadn't surrendered in the 1970s. Right. The last guy comes in in Guam in 1972. I mean... <laughs> And the really only, isn't it really blowing. the only reason he, re, he correct me i'm, I'm gonna I'm try to pull this vaguely isn't the only reason <laughs> he surrendered is because they like found his old commanding officer or something and brought him and said the war's over that was definitely a major factor yeah they, they, to, to convince him and he, and he and as far as i know he he kind of knew by then but he still <laughs> felt honor dictated that he continued to, to hold out um <laughs> 
yeah, so that's that's the cultural expectation if you're a Japanese soldier uh, that that you are supposed to hang in there and fight as best you can. Now, of course, I think it's important to point out too that you know these guys are are young men with hopes and aspirations and dreams like everybody else. They wanted to live. Um, and they had homes and families and and really so what I've done in this whole series or what I tried to is is really give you the Japanese perspective too, especially from the soldier's point of view. And what in the means for doing that is just some really incredible material, like captured diaries that were later translated uh by US and Australian translators, um, you know, that, that end up nowadays as really good accounts of Japanese soldiers, most of whom had lost their lives but had kept these diaries that were then captured, you know, when, when their positions were overrun. And you really do see that kind of human side mm. that these guys wanted to live, but that was the cultural peer pressure and the cultural expectation. Um, and, you know, so in that sense, you can, you can relate to it because we all have our kind of cultural uh, you know, we're all affected by our culture and, and our peers and, and uh, what the what the society expects of us or whatever. Um, you know, American soldiers are no different in that regard, but they couldn't quite grasp the idea of just sort of suicidally expending your life when you had clearly lost, when there was no purpose for the struggle and when you were probably going to be treated OK as a POW, though not all the Japanese really, really believed that or understood it. Exactly. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are speaking with author John C. McManus about his book, To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945. Why was this Western, Southern Western Pacific drive, why was it necessary given the support, excuse me, given the success of the Central Pacific drive, Guadalcanal, Tarawa, that was being undertaken under the command of Chester Nimitz and mostly the United States Marine Corps. Why did why did we have to do this too? Well, one thing I want to point out is that, that Nimitz also had a lot of army force under his command too. And in fact, that ends up as either even or more of his ground manpower is, is army divisions, um, but also the logistical support, especially too. Um, but it this sort of two-pronged assault becomes necessary to put maximum pressure on Japan. Now, if we're now, but in fairness, it sort of comes from a, an uneasy compromise between the army and the navy, which uh, you know, I mean, the navy you can understand. I mean, it's the Pacific Ocean is vast; it's a naval war going on out there, and uh, so they're not going to want to submit to uh, you know their all their ships and whatnot to an army officer in one theater command. And also, you know, the army can quite properly say, well, we're doing most of the fighting, dying on land. Uh, and we've got a lot of skin in this particular game, so we don't necessarily want to sublimate ourselves to one naval officer. So this is a kind of compromise, um, you know, and, and from the Japanese perspective now, you have two very powerful uh, entities, two powerful advances now that is dispersing your resources. The classic example of this happens in 1942 when the Japanese are pouring a lot of people and resources into Guadalcanal. And they're also fighting in New Guinea around Buna, Gona, San Ananda, not as well known, but the dispersal of their resources really leads to their defeat. And we as Americans tend to think of the New Guinea thing and the Guadalcanal thing as completely different battles. They're not. They're two battles in the same campaign. They just happen to be under different commanders. New Guinea under MacArthur and Halsey with Guadalcanal. So we tend to think of it as different. From the Japanese perspective, it's two chapters in the same book. And China. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the other component of this too, that I, that I hope that they uh, you know, bled that, to death in China for God's sakes. Right. I mean, so the Chinese lose about 15 million people in this war at a minimum. Um, and probably anywhere from about uh, one half to sometimes even two thirds of the Imperial Japanese army is tied down in China. So every guy who's who's in China is one less who's going to be fighting you somewhere in the Pacific. Um, you know, granted, if if the Japanese maybe sometimes they don't have enough shipping to move all these guys or whatever, but still the the point holds. So I, I tend to one of the things I've tried to do in the series is maybe kind of flip the script a little bit. That I, I think we all you know are certainly affected by the the Europe first policy, and I, and I think we'd all accept that it was important to to prioritize the defeat of Hitler. Um, but I also think that there was a kind of major strategic consequence of that. And, and the primary thing was that China, uh, the China Burma India theater got short shrift in terms of resources and strategic priority, which in turn probably meant the Americans had less influence over out, the outcome in China, which I think we would all accept, you know, helps lead to uh, the communists winning the civil war creates the People's Republic of China, which you could argue is the most consequential event in modern history. Certainly, the most consequential event in uh, in the Cold War Cold history, War. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think we're still you know feeling the effects of that today, quite obviously, aren't we? And so, um, but but at the same time, what answer was there? If you if you completely prioritize China, maybe it works out well for you, and then you lose Europe. Um, so mm -hmm. that's the dilemma that, that the strategists were facing in this kind of in this global war. Can you? Will you define? describe general douglas macarthur in one <laughs> word wow to one word that is that is very tough um vexing maybe that's my word <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> as as you know anybody who's read me and and has heard me knows that i'm not necessarily a big fan of macarthur but you know but i i try to defend him when it when, or look at the positive side too. Uh, he's certainly very, very uh, bright. He's uh, he's incredibly courageous uh, in terms of physical yeah. courage. Um, he is he's good-hearted in some ways. He I think he really did care about his soldiers, but he's also megalomaniacal. He's egomaniacal. He's also insecure. He tries to run for president while he's on active duty during the as a war commander during yeah, the for war 44 um, the 44 election right I, I think that's incredibly troubling he takes money um from the philippines government uh you know that when manuel Quezon, uh, who was only half a million dollars what's the big deal exactly which was like almost uh, you know eight million dollars in today's money that's a serious <laughs> chunk of coin and I, I don't know that that was really the right thing to do while you're on active duty and uh so any any and he certainly is deceptive when it's to his interests and so you see these different sides of macarthur come out over the course of this uh, these three volumes um and you know and so by luzon you know, by January 1945 and thereafter, you know, this is really his kind of shining moment as he would see it in World War II when he is uh, liberating the Philippines and maybe redeeming himself. So he's a very egocentric personality. And I've always kind of wondered, well, I know he's an ardent opponent of the Europe first policy and he thinks we ought to go Asia first, Pacific first. Is it because that's where he is or because that's what he really thinks? And I think it's maybe a combination of both. And I don't think he was 100% wrong either. So there's so many nuances of this. That, and I think that's partly what makes him fascinating to study. Let's talk about, I'm going to mention a few other names of, that, that are prominent in your book. 
and just give a minute or two. We were talking about uh, the new biography or the, that's not true. The, the wartime, the book that details the wartime service and leadership of Admiral Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz by uh, Craig Simons, who's coming on to discuss it. It's a terrific book, uh, but I'll mention some other names, too. Let's start. Let's start though with Nimitz. Nimitz is the commander in chief of the Pacific Fleet. He start ends up getting his fifth star, I believe, in December of '44. Right. Uh, he's a very quiet leader in a lot of ways, uh, but tremendously, let's say, underrated in my view. Uh, talk a little bit about Nimitz's leadership during this campaign uh, that's addressed by your book. Yeah, I mean, by 1945, one of the one of the points I make in into the end of the earth in this book, by that time, you could argue that Nimitz is the most powerful naval commander in in human history because the United States Navy has just grown uh, to a size and potency and sophistication level that's uh, I think really kind of unprecedented. Nimitz uh, is really kind of the perfect person for this job because he's handled crises early in the war when we were outgunned and outmanned. Um, He has been a very solid decision maker. He's someone who understands how to use talent on his staff or how to cultivate good commanders. Admiral Mark Mitcher is a really good example. He understood that though Mitcher had warts in terms of how he handled the Battle of Midway, in the long run, he was a, he was a first class, um, you know, naval aviation commander, and understood carrier warfare as well or better than anybody on the planet at that point. So the other thing Nimitz I think is good at is diplomacy, and you have to be if you're going to be dealing with MacArthur. Um, that, that's the thing that really stands out to me, especially as a, you know an army historian. Um, MacArthur is just so provocative, so at times immature, almost childish in a way in relation to Nimitz. And he's and it disdainful never of others. He just is like, yeah, well, I'm not going. Well, yeah, I'm not doing that. Exactly. He's, he's like, he sort of draws the line and says, and no, he, I'm not doing it. And, and, and he famously and called, called Roosevelt Franklin. He called the president of the United States, President Roosevelt, who he had known for years, in the presence of others, he would call him by his first name. And I just find that Ooh. so MacArthur. It really is, because who could be above MacArthur, right? Not even the president, <laughs> exactly. And he did that at the uh, uh, the Pearl Harbor Conference when when he and uh, Nimitz and FDR got together you know, in the summer of 44 to, to decide on future strategy. Um, and in a way, MacArthur had an advantage at that conference because he had worked with Roosevelt because uh, MacArthur had been U.S. Army Chief of Staff in the 30s. Uh, so they did have that kind of personal knowledge, I won't really say rapport, but they were kind of frenemies in a way, as we would call it today, but well, they could make nice when they were with each other. And these are two very, you know, very political, uh, very sort of nuanced, complex individuals who could weave their webs. And so Franklin and Roosevelt, I think, understood the game MacArthur was playing quite well. Uh, Nimitz was a little bit on the outside in that respect, although uh, FDR had chosen him personally, for the, the commander-in-chief Pacific Fleet job. Uh, and obviously that was a, an outstanding choice. So I think, yeah, I think Nimitz is, it doesn't get quite enough credit, but I, I also I also highly urge everyone to read Craig Simon's book uh, about him. It's, it's first rate. Is it true that Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, referred to the Navy as we and the Army as they? <laughs> he did, uh, because Roosevelt had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy during like the Wilson years. 
Uh, and he really, you know, he was a Navy guy and he was a naval thinker and he loved um, uh, making ship models or he'd gotten a lot of them as gifts and liked to display them in his office. Yeah. So that was a little disturbing from, from the Army point of view, I guess, <laughs> that the president is calling the Navy we, right? <laughs> Marshall, General Marshall <laughs> joked about it. Like, it's unnerving. Yeah. But what can you do? Uh, another one I want to ask you about is uh, Walter Kruger, who was the commander, I believe, of the 6th U.S. Army. That's right. Yeah. And there was some real friction. And I'll just say the other person, uh, Robert Eichelberger. Right. The commander of the 8th Army. Right. Mm -hmm. What was what were their roles? You just said them. But what were their roles and why was there this friction that even MacArthur, General MacArthur, participated in? Yeah, MacArthur played them off against each other because uh, he knew they were rivals, and especially about 1945 when you have these big operations going on in the Philippines. So um, Kruger, is, Kruger is such a fascinating guy. Both of them are. But um, Kruger was one of only two foreign-born generals uh, in the U.S. Army in World War II. The other one was Ben Lear, but he was born in Canada. I don't know if that really counts. Um Kruger was born in Germany, and he was actually he was a son of a German soldier. Uh, and his, Kruger's father died when Kruger was an adolescent, so the family moves to America. Uh, his mother remarries, and so Kruger had to basically learn a whole new culture, a whole new language as a, as a young person. And when the uh, the war of uh, the war against Spain broke out in 1898, he joins the army as a 17 year old private. So Kruger is a totally self-made guy. He has, not only does he have no West Point pedigree, he has no college degree, he has no high school diploma, and he ends up as a four-star general. That'll never happen again. Uh, he's he's incredibly um, intellectual, though, in his own way. He'd write all these sort of wonky, like military, uh, intellectual articles in the 1920s. He um, he was a, very much a stalwart soldier. Uh, but he was a little over age when World War II broke out. He's in his 60s. So he was surprised when MacArthur tapped him to be uh, commander of the 6th Army. Kruger is is steady. He is um, he's thoughtful, uh, but he's not bold. And, and so the, the term you often hear associated with him is cautious. And, and indeed, you know, that had played out in the South Pacific. It had played out, um, you know, in, uh, in Leyte, and it plays out in, uh, in Luzon, mainly because Kruger isn't really very quick to, on the dash to Manila, and MacArthur's very frustrated with him and all that. By contrast, Eichelberger, um, who was a West Pointer, son of a Civil War uh, veteran on the Union side uh, from Ohio, uh, Eichelberger had grown up in this, this really well-off home but he was the youngest of five kids, and he had a father uh, who would just like pit the kids against one another in competition. Well, I, I would almost say like they'd be a reality TV family in this day and age sort of thing. And uh, and he's the youngest, you know, it's hard for him to compete. So he was never taken seriously. And that's his thing uh, of proving himself. And, and the Army became a way to do that. Um, in World War One, when most of his um, classmates, he was class of 1909 uh, with George Patton who was a longtime friend of Eichelberger, and their, their vision of war was very similar. Their level of success as ground commander, very similar. Um, so most of these guys are going to the Western Front. He went to Russia with the Polar Bear Expedition, which was a uh, an allied, Western allied and Japanese attempt to snuff out the Bolshevik regime during the Russian Civil War. So he'd seen combat, he'd done intel, he got the Distinguished Service Cross, he'd studied the Japanese. Uh, so he's intellectual too, but he's much more glib. 
He's really warm. He's witty. He's charming. He has no enemies in the army. And Kruger's really brusque. He could be incredibly rude. Um, and Eichelberger couldn't fathom that. And so he had Eichelberger had served under him as a corps commander and was and very successfully, but he was angry at all these little slights that he felt Kruger had had done. And Kruger probably didn't even know he'd done it. Uh, and he was much bolder. So he was frustrated that he thought Kruger was too cautious. So by 1945, then uh, MacArthur's using them against each other to, to kind of get results in the Philippines, especially with Eichelberger and the push for Manila. And then Eichelberger has this sort of lightning, incredible campaign to liberate much of the archipelago that we forget about today because it's kind of strategically pointless, but it, it's beautifully, beautifully handled. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Professor John C. McManus. We are discussing his book, To the End of the Earth, The U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945. Now, I'm going to be a homer here and insert a name because he is an Indianapolis Public Schools graduate, Short Ridge, and a Hoosier through and through. And that, to me, is one of he is he is probably Nimitz's greatest discovery, to put it that way. And that's probably overstating it, but we're going to go with it. And that's <laughs> Admiral Raymond Spruance, uh, one of the greatest Hoosiers of all time. What do you think of his performance? Well, I think I think Spruance was first rate. Um, he's you talk about like a steady hand. Uh, nothing colorable about Spruance. Um, not all that media friendly or really media savvy, uh, but somebody who I think understands naval warfare on on every operational level. Certainly by 1943, in the in the post Midway era, of course, he's the guy who handles does most of the or a lot of the heavy lifting at the, the Battle of Midway, the tough decision making. Um, you know, but he, but he's not colorful, so I think he's forgotten. Uh, I think it's an absolute travesty, in, in, just in my opinion, that when they started to give out five stars, um, that that uh, Halsey got it instead of Spruance. Spruance is really a more successful commander. Um, so he is, by 1945, uh, really, you know, in, in terms of like operational fleet command, really the leading guy in the U.S. Navy. He's someone Nimitz has, has counted on uh, for, a, for a long period of time, and he's been a kind of a loyal stalwart person too uh whereas halsey is is much more sort of media savvy and colorful so we tend to remember him more did am i correct in remembering that spruance when it came to getting a fifth star said that he would want it but he wouldn't want it if halsey didn't get it yeah i mean he's yeah he's also kind of selfless in that regard and he thought highly of of halsey and vice versa um, so yeah, there was, it's it interesting because the dynamic there isn't quite as much a rivalry as like what you see with Eichelberger and Kruger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, but that was Spruance. He seemed to be for a guy who ends up as a four-star who, who commands as many ships and so powerful uh, as he, as it was, he doesn't really have that much ego, uh, you know, relatively speaking. And he, our he former, just, uh, our former Senator Richard Luger, who served under Arlie Burke tried to get 
the fifth star for Spruance and unfortunately was never successful, but I hope he definitely, to your point, he gets it one day. You mentioned something a few okay. minutes ago about the United States Navy. And I think I asked uh, Craig Simons this question. Let me ask, ask it of you. So removing the strategic air command, right? Like the post-nuclear or the, excuse me, the post-World War II. Is it fair to say that the United States Navy in 1945 was the most powerful fighting force that ever existed? It's certainly in the conversation. I mean, if we're talking about naval forces, I, I don't think it has any peer. Um, in terms of most powerful forces, what's about to come along, of course, is nuclear weaponry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that the Army Air Forces controls. So, so I might retreat from saying it's the most powerful force, but it is. Its capabilities are incredible, and I, I don't just mean like the the glamorous aircraft carriers and the and the subs and the battleships, all those capital ships. What I'm talking about as much as anything is sustainment, the ability to have a, a, a fleet of oilers uh, and a kind of logistical support network that keeps that operational fleet, in, you know, in in combat for long periods of time. It just really hadn't been done in naval history. You know, it, it, of course, later on when you've got nuclear propelled craft and all that, that's a different animal. But I'm talking about up to 1945, there is no comparison. And that is a major reason why the, the Allies are going to do as well as they are by 1945. The Imperial Navy can't compete with that. So you're, you're dealing with uh, very potent uh, fleets that are at sea an incredibly long period of time relative to what was possible in the past. So from that angle, I think the, the Navy is is just really formidable. And in certain time periods of the of the war, early in the war, there was like three carriers or at some point, even one carrier that was in the entire Pacific Navy. And how many carriers did they end up at the end of the war? <laughs> so at Okinawa, um, Mitcher has at least 18 carriers, uh, 18 major fleet carriers that he has with him. And of course, then you, you've got other you know, uh, lighter carriers and all that. And then you add another uh, five from the British fleet that's part of the, the Battle of Okinawa too. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're just sort of a wash in capital ships to, <laughs> by the end of the war. Um, and, but but again, you know, I think it's really important to just step back and say, you know, what was possible to keep them at sea in 1942 is dwarfed by what you can do in 1945. And, and that's a reason why the fleet can kind of hang in there at Okinawa, um, you know, and, and continue during this two plus month long battle, almost three months uh, to, to support the ground forces and protect itself and, and uh, improve upon bases, all those things it's doing. And, and obviously it's taken a lot of punches from the famous kamikazes. So uh, that is a definitely a kind of a capstone in the, the Navy's battle experience. Let me ask you one more, please, uh, general question. And then I want to add several more here about your book. So much is written about how both America's allies and adversaries respected, feared uh, the United States' industrial might. Lord Gray from Great Britain, who is a former foreign minister, compared the United States to a gigantic boiler. Once lit, there's no limit to the amount of heat it can produce. (laughs) But it seems that they, and perhaps we, underestimated amazingly what the United States was capable of in terms of industrial production. 
Yeah, and I think that's why that phrase "sleeping giant" so appeals to us, even all these decades later. What uh, you know, Admiral Yamamoto, the the mastermind of uh, the Pearl Harbor attack, what he's alleged to have said: "We've awakened a sleeping giant." Now he really may not have said that, but he might as well have because there was a lot of truth to it. Um, one of the things that's really helpful for the for the U.S. is that it had really begun mobilizing even before it formally got into the war. So for that almost that year or so before has been spent, especially on the naval side building a two ocean navy or having it on the on the in the blueprints and and so that means that you're really probably going to have that in play by about the middle to latter part of 1943 even as of course you're mobilizing all this uh, these other armed forces all this has to be supported by you know major resources and industrial output um which of course has been planned and it's it's incredibly haphazard and kind of chaotic <laughs> but the, the results are the results aren't they i mean it, you know an example I'd give you, what was called at the time aeronautical engineers, um, you know, they would have told you circa 1939 or 40, if you could build 10,000 to 15,000 warplanes in a year, you were doing extremely well uh, with your industrial output. Well, the U.S. in about the three, three and a half year period builds 300,000 military aircraft, um, you know, and then obviously ships a lot of them or flies a lot of them overseas because that's where they're all fighting. I mean, that's just a staggering kind of output. And wasn't there a point during the war where the United States actually started to cut back on production? Yeah, so that happens um, by the end of 1944 and by the spring of 1945, especially. Um, the the uh, War Production Board uh, is really starting to, to kind of scale back. And it, the interesting dynamic there is that the civilians really want to start scaling back war production. But the military force, especially the army, are like, hey, we, we still got major battles to fight. Uh, and I've always wondered what would have happened if we'd had to have that ground invasion of Japan. Um, they probably would have had to remobilize, I, I would think. But um, yeah, so so in, in that score, we were already starting to convert to a civilian economy by the spring of 1945 when these furious battles that I talk about into the end of the earth, like you know Luzon, like Okinawa, mm -hmm. while they were going on, the economy sort of retooling in a way anticipating the end of the war. I'm going to say it's a new style of writing. So you correct me because it's been around for a while, but the emphasis on the, what was happening on the ground, the conditions experienced by the soldier or Marine or airman, whoever you want to emphasize that's, that's a result of some new scholarship. Your buck does such a terrific, terrific job of explaining the conditions that you can't quite grasp while you're sitting on your couch and reading. As we were talking before, my uncle uh, drove a Higgins boat, a landing craft, to use the generic term, in the Central Pacific. He didn't really talk about it much. But when after I got out of the army and I was older, obviously, and he was older, I asked him a question about, you know, have you have you ever seen a military movie that comes close to capturing what you saw? And he said, he said, yes, this was after saving Private Ryan. He mm -hmm. said, yes, he goes, but no movie will ever capture the smell. Mm -hmm. When oh, you're writing absolutely. a book. When you're writing a book, how do you balance between being descriptive, you know, without being gory and just how savage was the fighting in the Philippines during this campaign? 
my and I, and after you answer that question, I'm going to bring up a specific example, which is I hate to say it's my favorite, but it just kind of is. Please go ahead. Sure, no, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, part of what I'm what I try to do in in all my books is as much as you can through words or in a literary sense, try and make you feel like you're there, uh, like you're back in there, like you're you're seeing it, you're hearing it maybe smelling it although i mean your uncle's so right no movie could ever convey the smell um it's just not one of the senses you you have in a movie you know so i i, I the way to do that i think is to really dig in to the primary source material to go on the firsthand accounts of those who were there but also and this is the, the sort of happy thing about world war ii there's so many records um, records of what went on and and what things look like and what the trials and tribulations were and all these kinds of things that you can really relate to all these decades later. Um, so, you know, I, I really think it takes a blend. And, and so what I tried to do is convey, here's what the war, you know, looks like, sounds like, maybe smells like for the, for the average private who's deep in the mountains fighting somewhere in Luzon. Here's what it looks like from MacArthur's point of view. Here's their various problems and how they're thinking it. Here's what it looks like from the Japanese point of view um, and trying to kind of weave that together in this human story. Cause that's what interests me is the human side. Um, just what human beings are going through and you know, whether we can relate to it or not. Months without showers, weeks without days, without changing clothes. I mean, the list goes on and on. Oh my gosh. The, the conditions are horrendous, uh, especially, you know, the, the Luzon battle, um, you know, in the early months of 1945 and Okinawa from April to, to June, which I, I have at least two chapters in the book on Okinawa. You know, at one point in the Battle of Okinawa in May 1945, you're talking about monsoon level rains that are turning your entire world into a wet, muddy quagmire. You are living in a foxhole that's probably half full of water. You're never dry. Um, there's maggots everywhere. There, there's you know, you can't evacuate the dead. So the rot there, uh, and it's kind of the same thing that's going on, uh, you know, as sixth army struggles in the mountains of Luzon against Japanese holdouts. Uh, you know, there's only so much we can do for you in terms of the, you know, cleanliness and hygiene and food and all the other supplies you need. And it's, so it's, um, uh, it's it's very hard to relate to when you're when you're comfortable and dry and secure and whatever else. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's a good thing on some levels, but uh, but yeah, I mean to, to kind of step back and think of it, it's it's just beyond belief. Yeah, the one instance I wanted to bring up is Fort Drum in the Philippines. Uh, I looked up the date; it's April tenth, I think, if I can read my own handwriting. Maybe the thirteenth, nineteen forty-five where the Japanese just simply won't come out and tell the leaders and legends podcast audience what happens next. I mean, it, what happens next is just have to blow them to smithereens. I mean, that, that's, that's what this has come down to thousands. Um, yeah. I mean, it, the U S is using explosives <laughs> at that basic soldier level. Uh, engineers are heavily occupied with that. And, and in use of that. So there's sometimes they're using bulldozers, especially for caves. But in the case of drum, I mean, it's mainly explosives and, and, and artillery. Artillery just as a battering ram, uh, you know, just to blow, again, to kind of blow them to smithereens. You see this also on Corregidor, uh, which, of course, is more famous for the surrender in 1942. But 
what isn't as well known is there's a major airborne amphibious operation to, to be captured in February 1945. And again, that's another sort of blowtorch sort of fight. You see the same thing in Manila, uh, which Fort Drum is part of that whole mix. So, you know, it just kind of depends where we're talking about if it's the same kind of thing, much less Okinawa, obviously, where, you know, by by uh, the middle part of that battle, the Americans are using flame tanks to, to a great extent. There's 55 of them that are spread all over the island, you know, just sort of flaming the Japanese out of their caves. My next question actually was, I just wrote flamethrowers. How much mm-hmm. harder, how much more difficult would these American victories have been? If we didn't just at one point decide we're going to burn them, yeah, I mean, I think it, it would have been much bloodier. You're probably talking. I mean, I just only my opinion. You know, probably anywhere from fifteen to thirty percent more casualties. Um, and, but what's what's striking about this 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 incredibly modern war? Well, this is one of humanity's oldest weapons. <laughs> the Greek <Flame>. fire. <laughs> Greek fire, exactly. And so now here we are using it. Uh, on several different levels. Now I'm talking about into the end of the earth, you know, the ground combat level in which, you know, individual flamethrower guys with tanks Mm -hmm. on top of their back. Yeah. They're dealing, but of course the flame tanks I just mentioned, which, which are largely first used at Iwo Jima, but really used extensively at Okinawa. So you got that, but of course, let's not forget that by now you have a major firebombing campaign that the army air forces have carried out against the Japanese home islands, most notably at Tokyo in March, 1945. Then again, in May, it's killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and so fire becomes, in some respects, the primary American weapon, much less, of course, by the end of the war, the nuclear weapons that obviously are using intense heat and fire uh, in that sense, too. Is there a particular example of bravery bravery or sacrifice that touches you that you oh. wrote about in this book? Gosh, there's so many that it's hard to, to, to narrow it down. Um, wow. Particular example. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that we point to any one individual. Uh, what I would say is <laughs> just looking at the, the the fight on Luzon and what that entails in Manila in particular. For the average American combat soldier, it is urban combat at its most intense. And so rather than point to any one individual, I would say, imagine then, if you will, just a small group of scared soldiers, platoon-sized, maybe 30 guys, um, having to go into a major earthquake-reinforced structure building uh, and clean out the Japanese from every floor. And what that means in terms of using flame, grenades, risking your life in a face-to-face struggle, um, I know of no more intense combat in uh, in modern history than that uh and it's the kind of thing you could say well every guy who is willing to go ahead and do that for any length of time ought to be pretty heavily decorated but they're not <laughs> so this becomes sort of mundane and and so maybe that's my larger message is the, the sort of frequency of this the mundanity of it in the sense that uh, and you look at it and say well these are everyday Americans. Maybe we're not all that different. We just happen to live decades later. So you maybe can relate to people that you might have been in that situation too. Average age of the combat soldier, early um, 20s, usually, late teens. Uh, yeah. I mean, usually about 20, 21, 22, maybe. Um, you'll often hear the, the, the stat 
put out there that the average American combat soldier in World War II was age 26. Uh, I think that's on the the old old level based on what I've seen. But you know, especially when we're talking about like infantry and ground yeah, combat, combat be, yeah, yeah, that's a young guy's game. And uh, so we're you know, if I'm even if I'm 30 years old, it's going to be hard for me to just to, to to you know deal with the conditions uh, in the hinterlands of Luzon or on on uh, you know Mindanao or wherever we happen to be fighting. Uh, so it really does skew young and you got an infusion of, of people who are fairly new to the army who have been inducted, many of them in the fall of 1944 or whatever, who are going to be in play, uh, you know, throughout 1945. Your book makes me, made me, will makes make readers cringe when detailing the atrocities of the Japanese, not only on um, Americans, but in some ways more savagely on the Filipinos, you know, as a fellow Asian race. Do the Japanese, did Japan, they get off easier than they should have because of the dominance of the Holocaust? You mean in, in historical memory? I mean, yeah, probably meaning so. that, you know, the Holocaust is obviously sui generis, right? I mean, it's it's biblical and it's in its horror in its proportion. But you you dig into what happened in China that the Japanese, you know, perpetrated, plus what they did to native populations in the islands and countries they took over, how they treated American prisoners. And you know, it's Hitler-esque. Oh, it's it's awful. Yeah, actually, you know, I teach a course on World War II and I spend an entire the course meets once a week for three hours. And I spend an entire course meeting, one entire night uh on the holocaust and and i say holocaust both asia and europe because uh, it's really both because at least 20 to 25 percent of those who die in world war ii die because of axis atrocities what we tend to call the holocaust in europe but there's also some level of that in uh, in asia and the pacific too most notably in china of course um so but yeah i mean in terms of what uh you know what the, the japanese are doing elsewhere in the Philippines, in Manila, one of the many tragedies of the battle is that, you know, you, you see about 100,000 plus uh, Filipinos lose their lives. A substantial portion of those are to Japanese atrocities. So I go into that in a in great level of depth. Um, and, and really, from the perspective even of the Japanese perpetrators, because you see these guys for what they really were. They weren't these sort of evil monsters who decide they want to go and kill people. And this is more disturbing, I think. They're everyday guys who are who sort of get to that level um, through through fear, anger, hatred, resentment. Because many of them, and this is I think I think as Americans, we totally lose this sort of sort of uh Japanese perspective of the war. When the when the war begins, many Japanese idealistically believe this was a very just war to eliminate white sponsored imperialism in Asia and the Pacific, and that Japan would bring a new era for, for so many peoples who were restive wanting to get rid of white colonialism. Of course, the reality was that you know many of them are just being used by the Tokyo government for its own imperialism. Um, and so they're coming face to face with the disillusionment, especially in the Philippines, where a lot of these guys deploy there thinking. They're going to love us as liberators. They're going to be wanting to get rid of the Americans. And in reality, of course, most of the Filipinos were very pro-American. And so that developed resentment and hatred and uh, and this sort of vindictiveness that you see play out at Manila in this horrible tragedy. So some of these guys were writing in their diaries uh, quite bluntly about how they're killing people. 
you know, and, and one of them is saying, one of them, a diary I found is saying, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I hope that God can forgive me. I could have never imagined doing these things when I was back at home, uh, you know, with my family or whatever, but it's who I am now. Uh, and it's, it's just horrifying. Your quotations from the Japanese diaries are particularly spicy and really do great credit to the book, to your book, because you just don't really see them that sort of level of research and detail in a lot of other books. And I have a couple of questions left before we get to the five questions we ask everybody. <laughs> Should we have invaded the Philippines? What about bypassing the Philippines and invading what was known at the time as Formosa? Did we yeah, make the right is- strategic decision? That is really the tough call. And, uh, you know, earlier I was talking about the the meeting that FDR and Nimitz and MacArthur have in Hawaii uh, in the summer of 44. And to some extent, they're wrestling with just that decision. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I come down on the side of ambivalence in the Philippines, because I think if you're not going for the Philippines, especially like Luzon, then you are going for Formosa. And that is going to be a really tough beast. Um just as a minimum, you're probably looking at, uh, you know, tying down something in order eight to a dozen divisions there. You're not going to deal with a population that is anywhere near as friendly. The terrain is every bit as bad or worse. The sustainment of logistics in that era would have been extremely difficult. Plus, you would have been dealing with a Japanese response from this open flank behind you, most notably in the Philippines. Uh, so on that level, it does make some sense to go to the Philippines um, because the other thing, too, to consider is that you're probably going to have to bypass and blockade the Philippines, which means that the Japanese are probably going to um, extract anything they can from it. You're probably going to look at a famine there. Uh, so that's going to cost the Filipinos mm. dearly. In addition to the POWs, we're still there. Of course, the downside of going to the Philippines is exactly what did happen. It ends up as this terrible sort of manpower, costly long campaign that continues through the end of the war. So literally from October 44 to Leyte to VJ Day, you're fighting in the Philippines somewhere. Um, and of course, then that means we brought war to the Philippines, uh, which means destruction of people's homes, villages, and ultimately the sad destruction of Manila. So it's remarkably similar to Europe in the sense of, well, in order to liberate, liberate a place, we have to at least in part destroy it, like France and Belgium, in Luxembourg, order to save parts of Holland, maybe parts of Italy. It's the same kind of concept, and it's gut-wrenching, of course, especially for the, for the locals. When I was reading your book and I was getting to the end, and I didn't read ahead because I'm not a jerk, <laughs> uh, I was hoping that you would delve into something that you did and you do it beautifully. And that is the liberation of Jonathan Wainwright, Mm -hmm. the American army general who had to take MacArthur's place in 42 and actually surrendered the army and spent three years, two and a half, three years as a prisoner of war Uh, relay for the leaders and legends audience, his reunion with MacArthur because MacArthur was kind of a jerk to him after he was kidnapped or excuse me, after he was captured, but softened considerably when he actually saw him. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Wainwright had taken over for MacArthur when MacArthur leaves the Philippines. 
MacArthur felt in the, you know, the aftermath of surrenders that Wainwright should have struggled on somehow. And so Wainwright had, or MacArthur had actually taken steps behind the scenes to make sure that the War Department would not decorate Wainwright with a Medal of Honor, which they had wanted to, um, in part also because of his remarkable leadership as a POW. And he endures, you know, three years of this, and it was just a horrendous experience. Of course, all of that had shifted by the end of the war. Um, there had been, uh, Wainwright had been on the cover, I think, of Time magazine, one of the very prominent uh, mass circulation uh, magazines. And, you know, when he's liberated, of course, it's a very big deal. He's the highest ranking American military officer in captivity in the war. He's lionized, really, by by everybody who was a POW with him, highly thought of, and, and he's going to get the Medal of Honor, and he's a national hero um, on, a, on a level that few others in World War II could claim. And so by the time he has his reunion, Wainwright with MacArthur, uh, and these two have known each other a long time, uh, by the way, since West Point days, and, and you know, they'd served on and off together. There, MacArthur then is very warm to him. And this, this is a sort of the duality of MacArthur, that uh, it could be Byzantine one moment, and he could also be very warm and heartwarming the next. And so um, MacArthur's dining with uh, several of his officers at the hotel where they're staying in uh, the Tokyo area. And uh, in walks Wainwright, and, and the room was just hushed, you know, because in part because of uh, Wainwright's physical condition. He was always, you know, a, a kind of a lean guy. His nickname in the Army was Skinny. Uh, you can imagine how much skinnier he is after <laughs> captivity. And, and, of course, the other thing that's really kind of amazing to think about, you know, by the time Wainwright walks into that room, he'd been eating reasonably well for almost three weeks, and yet he still looked like he was about to die, practically. And so there's this hush and then just this incredible warmth uh, as everybody descends on Skinny Wainwright, you know, wanting to, to to show their love for him and appreciation for what he did. And MacArthur then, you know, to his credit, you know, does right by Wainwright anytime he possibly can. And Wainwright was loyal to MacArthur for the rest of his life. Never said an ill word about him publicly. Had General Wainwright stand behind him during the Japanese surrender ceremony on the uh, USS Missouri, I believe gave him one of the pins. He did. Yeah. So, it, so it's interesting. MacArthur, you know, does partial signatures. So he gives, he, he signs part of his name and he gives the pen to Wainwright. And then he signs another part of his name and he gives it to uh, Percival, who was the, the British commander at Singapore, who had been captured in long endured captivity. And he was standing over the other shoulder behind MacArthur. Last question before we get to the five questions, President, McManus, your president. It's Uh-oh, August 1945. Trouble. Are you dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or are you waiting for the Japanese to change their mind and surrender through other means? Well, you know, as I look at the situation, then they've just had the opportunity to to accept the Potsdam Declaration in late July 1945 which dictates many of the terms that on which are eventually going to end this war. Uh, so w- the best information I have uh, in, by the first week of August 1945 is they're going to continue the struggle. We're planning for this monumental invasion of Japan, which would have made all other previous invasions look like <laughs> child's play. Um, it would have been not only incredibly costly for the Allied side, but for the Japanese side, the loss of life. 
uh, we're already firebombing their cities. Uh, so we're looking for any weapon that's going to bring about an end to this war. And so, yeah, I think it's very easy to come along later and moralize and whatever else. And and there, you'll have some who claim that uh, the Japanese had already lost the war and they were willing to surrender and all that. Well, if they were, they hadn't done it yet. Um, and they had so never surrendered in their history ever. Uh, right. And so, you know, it's the dual body blows of the atomic bomb and the Soviets entering the war that finally changes the equation. But I, this is another thing I really cover in the book. I think we really tend to forget that even after that happened, after the Japanese government communicated its willingness to accept the terms, even then there was a coup. And there was a coup launched by mid-level officers who killed their commanding general, who was Hirohito's bodyguard, killed him and were looking to even apprehend Hirohito uh, to get him, use him as an instrument to continue the fight. And, uh, you know, Hirohito had uh, recorded his famous message to the Japanese people. They were looking to get that recording and destroy it. Okay, so they fail. Of course, we all know that. But that wasn't a sure thing. Uh, so it's possible that there's thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, who knows, maybe even millions like them who are going to continue the struggle on some level, even after this horrible, horrifying atomic bombing and whatever else. So again, it's very easy to, to kind of come along later and, and uh, you know, <laughs> so I, I think, you know, based on the information I have at the time, if I'm president, again, that's a very troubling concept. But if I am, I am probably going ahead with the bombing, knowing, you know, full, how, well, how terrible this is, how badly I want it over with. It would have been wonderful to to be there on these on these ships and and here and cities and countries and islands to hear the marines and airmen and sailors cheer when they realize that they don't have to invade japan yeah i mean it's so, i don't know how many world war ii veterans i've had tell me over the years you know i think the the bombing saved my life and <laughs> i mean i'm sure there's some element of truth to that um yeah i mean and of course uh the, the army was going to have to do almost all the fighting and dying in in uh, what was called operation downfall that was dual invasions one of kyushu called operation olympic and one of uh Honshu called operation coronet mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the army was about 90 percent of the forces going in there uh, you're talking tens so- of millions of deaths if you take the japanese and combine them with the American or British or Australian, it would have been this, it would have in your mind, would it have rivaled Barbarossa, the, the Eastern front? It could have, it could have. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it could have been at that level. Um, the only thing that you, you, you know, you had a level of sea power, air power and firepower uh, of the Western allies who would have been invading that I think would have saved some casualties uh, on the Japanese side. It would have been every bit as costly as it was for the Soviets, uh, if not more. Um, you know, and, and it, yeah, this would have been a multinational effort too. There was going to be a French division, an Australian division, British, um, uh, possibly New Zealand too. So uh, there, there were a lot of people who were going to be suffering. Uh, and I, I do think it's best for everybody long-term while also acknowledging just how incredibly horrifying the, the nuclear bombings were. I mean, that's just, you know, that's the reality too. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. We'll stay with the title. President McManus, are you are you ready? Sure. Ready as I'll ever be. What was your first job? Uh, first job was really more informal, just cutting lawns. Um, 
You know, I'm sure a lot of people could answer that. I, I cut a lot of lawns around my neighborhood and I thought it was fun when I was a kid. I enjoyed it. What was your first concert? Uh, my first concert, I, I really am kind of loathe to admit, was actually a Journey concert. Uh, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, not a big bad. Journey fan now, but uh, but yeah, I think I was you know 12 or 13 or something. And, uh, you know, we got a buddy of mine got uh, tickets and uh, somebody older who worked with his father drove us to the concert or took us. I don't even remember, but um, it was fun. It was fun to go. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's like trying to describe MacArthur in one word, I guess. Um, and I mean, it just depends what interests you, I guess. Uh, but if we're, uh, you know, I think about uh, World War II books, um, maybe start with Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, uh, because if you want to understand something of the the causes of the war in Europe and sort of what it looked like at the time from the perspective of, of course, William Shirer, this, this famous CBS correspondent, I, I just know of no other introductory book that really you can kind of take into that world while understanding that came out a long time ago, but it's just still so valuable. But the, there's a million other books I, I could and would. It's a great choice. Though. If you didn't like question three, you're going to hate question four. <laughs> If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Yeah, I might choose uh, the ceremony aboard the USS Missouri uh, that that ends the war with Japan. Uh, I think it's incredibly poignant. I think it's beautifully done. Uh, I think it's one of MacArthur's finest moments in his entire life. Uh, I think it's also the beginning of a new Japan. Uh, you know, it, it, one of the things that's really so fascinating is how. Um, yes, the, the the key Allied officers are all there in their assigned spots and all that. Uh, but, you know, it's not really an accident who's on the Japanese delegation, too. And uh, one of them, I think this is really interesting in retrospect, one of them was uh, from the equivalent of their State Department, one of a very well very well versed diplomat who, who spoke English well and understood the U.S. and and he has a very famous niece uh, who is known as Yoko Ono. You know, so right mm -hmm. there, you also kind of see the future too. And I, I just think uh, it, it would have been very interesting to to kind of sit there and watch the whole thing proceed. Last question: If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh my goodness. Oh wow. These are almost as tough as your class there in military history. They, they are. I should ask my students this and they'd have a they'd have a tough time. Um well since I'm I'm on an you know an Indianapolis oriented um uh podcast, I'm gonna say Peyton Manning. And uh the reason for that is of course I, I saw him play uh, at Tennessee, because I was there as a graduate student when he was the quarterback, uh, followed his career a long time. And I, I think he'd be interesting on a lot of levels beyond football. Um, he's he's just the first person that comes to mind. If I'm not thinking about wonks and policy people and all that, which <laughs> that could go on forever, too. But just more on the fun side, I, I just think he'd be an interesting person. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and 
NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been John C. McManus. He is a distinguished professor of U.S. military history at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He is the author of several books, and we just discussed his latest, and that is To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945. It is an amazing book. It balances the tactical with the strategic, with the grassroots, as well as anything I've ever read. Professor McManus, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it, Robert. Thank you. And to quote Douglas MacArthur, these proceedings are now closed. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.